0: Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Muzia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill, or a cup of coffee. You can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine biolife. That's patreon.com backslash marine Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what do you call a crab that throws things? A lobster. What is a crab's favorite fruit? The crab apple. Today, I'm chatting with Caitlin Lauder, Senior Program Associate with the Ocean Foundation, where she supports the International Ocean Acidification Initiative. Despite growing up in a landlocked desert, Caitlin always knew she wanted to become a marine biologist. She pursued her dream of becoming a marine scientist and at university was the recipient of the Noah Holling Scholarship as well as the Canals Fellowship when she graduated. Caitlin also presented at two UN Conference of the Parties, or COP conventions, and succeeded in her efforts in getting ocean in the Paris Agreement. We chat about her research studying the sturdiness of crustaceans such as crabs and lobsters, the difference between nonprofit and government work, how she kept the dream of being a marine scientist alive despite growing up in the desert, and her current initiative to assess ocean acidification on a global scale. Please enjoy. Caitlin Lauder, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am very excited to chat with you today.
1: Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here.
0: So you have a winding route to kind of get where you are today, but I want to dive into why did you want to become a marine biologist in the first place? What inspired that?
1: Ah, I'm one of those people who wanted to be a marine biologist since they were a child, yes. <laughs> around eight or so. Um, I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada, so the pure desert. Um, I was fortunate enough that my family took us on trips to Mission Beach in in San Diego as a child. And so I got to run around with all the kelp, uh, dragging that along the beach and finding cool um, sand dollar tests and like just being really excited about what was on the beach. But going back and spending most of my time in this desert, what was really impactful for me was going to the library with my mom. And over in the section where she used to like check out her mystery books and everything, there was a tiny little corner store where they got rid of extra. Copies of books and things. And there were huge stacks of National Geographics and they're only 10 cents a piece. So I used my allowance to just like grab as many as I could carry each time we went and bringing those home and looking through the pages with like the beautiful pictures and in, in the tropics and these lovely angel fish. And one story that really stuck with me was one about harbor porpoises. And they had a picture of a harbor porpoise underwater and said that was like the first picture that has ever been taken of a harbor porpoise in the wild from underneath the surface. And that mm. really stuck with me. It's like, Wow. Like there's still so much science to learn about, you know, our oceans and our environment in general. And that was the first time that it really clicked that science isn't totally figured out and something that, you know, is in textbooks and we just like learn that, like there's still so much to do. And so that was really like set me on the path to ocean science at an early age and then I just stuck with it.
0: <laughs> yes. I love this story so much. It's something that we talk about quite a bit on the podcast is like there's still so much out there, like people are naming creatures and discovering new creatures. All the mm-hmm. time. And it's really interesting when that happens with a megafauna, like a harbor porpoise, right? Like, this is the first yeah. one was under was uh, photographed underwater. Like, just things like this are still possible, and there's still so much exploration and unknown in the ocean.
1: Mm hmm when I was a little kid, I, you know, wanted to be someone who like named a species. It's like, I'm going to find that species (laughs) that no one has ever seen before. But going to graduate school, I've learned that there are thousands and thousands of species that are still uncovered and we're working on now. So it's not where I I took my career, but there is so many opportunities in this field to to make an impact, to learn something new, to help learn more about our planet, which is really exciting.
0: Yes. So, You knew you wanted to be a marine biologist, you applied to schools, and you ended up going to Western Washington University. Why did you Mm -hmm. choose to go there?
1: Oh, that's an excellent question. So it's a smaller school. Um, I had also been considering in-state schools in Utah um, that, you know, maybe offered more tuition benefits, other things like that, but I really wanted to find somewhere that... I could study marine biology um and i think they have a really good program in that you learn a lot of basic biology as well so cell biology genetics the whole range of potential biology that you might need actually when you specialize later on but Mm -hmm. i still got that taste of going to the marine lab and learning about different invertebrates um getting the chance to study abroad was really impactful for me and so for anyone who's looking into colleges i recommend visiting like seeing if the professors are interested in speaking with you because that's a good sign of how Uh, you know, well run your classes will be. Um, But finding a program that has a good fit for what you want. And overall, I do think it is important to find a program that teaches you a broad base of knowledge. So I know it's hard, you really want to go in and like study marine biology, like on day one. (laughs) At least I did too. But um, it's really useful to, to have a good base of knowledge. And then later on, you can sort of like check out things in more detail.
0: Yeah, and you actually dual majored, which is so impressive with biology and English. Mm. And I found this, I mean, I think it's brilliant. um, But at the time, I mean, that's like quite a load to take on because there's not much intersection between biology and English. What prompted that?
1: So even though I had this dream of being a marine biologist from a young age, um, I really liked English and literature as well um, in high school. And so when I was going into college, I had that dilemma of like, do I want to be a marine biologist, which you imagine being you know, relatively underpaid career. I don't think that's true now, especially depending on what path you go into. Or do I want to be something like a copy editor at a publisher? It both sounded really exciting. And so I started out, you know, on a path of setting myself up for either one of these and ended up deciding that I really liked marine biology, especially learning about the different career paths that were possible and ended up settling, you know, more on that going after undergraduate. But I do think there's a lot of interesting overlap between the two in that English classes, you really work on workshopping um, literature, you know, perfecting your writing and finding good ways to share information, but mm. also critiquing others, too. And so going into my biology classes when we're reading scientific papers, I found that sometimes my colleagues weren't able to, like, dig past, you know, what's written down, like, finding these gaps in the methods um, that are, you know, important for understanding how good the paper is or how good the science is mm. or, you know, the sort of, like, next steps that are hinted at um, among the work. And so that was really beneficial for me, I think, is to have, you know, training in both of these fields um, going forward. There is a lot of writing in in biology. That's something that I do right now is basically spend my whole day writing different kinds of documents.
0: Yes. Yeah. I think that's a great point because it's not something that you really think about. You think of maybe going in the field and collecting data. um, But, you know, some of that, I mean, a lot of times data can just be strictly numerical, right? Mm-hmm. So so you don't really think about the importance of English, but grant writing, research papers, you know, the, there's a whole gamut of reasons of why English is super important in this field. So I thought that was brilliant and super interesting that you actually double majored in it.
1: One of the cool things i think about marine biology is that since it is such a diverse field you can find what really speaks to you so whether it is focusing more on the writing you know perhaps you might be someone who writes grants full-time and is a contractor for organizations that that needs someone to do that or perhaps you're more into the mathematical aspects and become more of a fishery statistician um since it is so broad or you you know you really like getting out in the field or being at the bench and just like working through your samples there's so many different paths forward to do that. Um, And I think that's a really unique part of being a marine biologist is just so many diverse topics to uh, look into.
0: Yes, definitely. So something that you just mentioned that is brought up a lot in the field and for people that are aspiring is that it's traditionally viewed as an underpaid role or underpaid field as a whole. So, Mm -hmm. and you said that's not always true, which I have found instances where I agree with that. So what were some of the examples that you've uncovered?
1: I would say once I, left academia and finished my my phd and went out into the world one uh of my next steps was becoming a canals marine policy fellow in dc um, where i was working for the national oceanic and atmospheric administration as a fellow of course um, but learning the salaries of some of my co-workers in dc was was really interesting mm-hmm. um, either all public right like federal salaries are public state salaries of professors are public online so you can sort of search around and get an idea of you know, what are the different possibilities? And I would say working for the federal service at some of these higher levels can be very comfortable even living in a high cost area like DC. So while it may not be that work that's, you know, out in the field and enjoying the the ocean every day, I still think you can do this sort of work and think about science and think about how to progress it at these like higher levels, like get into the policy sphere or make sure that there's support for scientists. There's these cool little avenues that are you know options for perhaps having like a more financially stable career um, and still getting to to do marine biology
0: yes yeah that's a great point i love that you brought that up so we kind of jumped ahead a little bit with that but i want to take it back you knew you want to be a marine biologist you graduated with your bachelor's did you go straight into getting your master's and phd or did you have some time to gain some experience in between there
1: nope i went straight in i graduated undergraduate and then Drove straight down the coast to San Diego at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and started class four days later. So it was a very quick transition. Um, It's interesting. Um, I enjoyed that. You know, I think I was ready to continue on with school. There are different challenges, of course, like some of my friends who had taken some time off, some as much as 10, 20 years um, in some instances, had a little bit of a different perspective. And those that had done their their master's beforehand, I started straight into a PhD program, um, they had, you know, gotten the lay of the land a little bit. So I'd say like my first year or so was a little bit more rough, like figuring out graduate school, doing research for like basically the first time in earnest, Um, a lot of challenges along the way with that, but... Um, I still really enjoyed doing it and I'm happy with how that went. I don't know what I would have done in the interim, to be honest.
0: There are people that know they want to be marine marine biologists and then they just, they go all the way, right? Mm -hmm. Like I want to be a marine scientist, so I'm going to get the PhD and just don't, don't stop, don't pass go, don't collect $200, right? We're going for (laughs) it. And then there's other people that are like, well, let me like, you know, either opportunities present themselves or they seek out other opportunities to in order to get a break from school or just to see what else is out there Mm -hmm. and gain experience doing that and then decide to go back. So it's always fascinating to me to see kind of the thought process behind PhD or no. And did you go straight into it or not? During your PhD, you studied crustaceans in the ocean. You want to tell us a little bit more about it?
1: Yeah, I love talking about crustaceans. So the ones that I studied are crab, shrimps, and lobsters, so the big guys. Um, this is a love that I found during a study abroad program during my undergraduate. Uh, we went down to um, Mexico, Baja California, Sur, and for five weeks just spent a lot of time out in the field um, studying the the coral reefs, but answering our own research questions as well. And it was there that I you know, was snorkeling around and started finding these little bits of animals that you know, didn't look like they were dead, but you know, were clearly, clearly a piece of an animal. Mm-hmm. And I found out that they were molts from crustaceans, like a, a crab that had molted, and its uh, exoskeleton or its outer shell had washed up on the beach, or mm-hmm. a really brightly colored spiny lobster that I found snorkeling. And I was like, these are, you know, really cool that you can go along and and find little bits of the animals that are tucked away in crevices that you'll never see anywhere. And so going forward into um, graduate school, that's something that I knew I wanted to continue studying. And so I ended up focusing my PhD on studying the crustacean exoskeleton. So again, that outer shell that they shed periodically to grow and -hmm. all the cool things that it can do um, in terms of predator defense. So, you know, pushing back against predators in the terms of spiny lobster antennae or, you know, uh, acting as armor, so an octopus or a big fish can't break into it. They can produce sound with that exoskeleton. Um, it's just like an amazing feature of their body. And I thought that was really cool to study, you know, just for the basic science aspects. Mm-hmm. But I was really interested in ocean acidification as well, like this mm-hmm. process of CO2 dissolving into seawater and changing the chemistry in a way that makes some of the um, building blocks of minerals, less bioavailable, and having other impacts on ocean life as well. And since crustaceans are relatively understudied at that time, I thought this was a good opportunity to look at how um, these changing ocean conditions can affect the way their exoskeleton functions against predators. So all of the projects that I did um, throughout my graduate time really lent itself to that question. So I got to study these animals that I I really loved.
0: I want to dive a little bit into your findings. And I Is there a difference between the different species that you were studying as far as their ability to withstand ocean acidification? I saw that uh, lobsters are apparently super hardy and are, uh, are able to withstand some serious changes.
1: Yeah, the ones that I were studying, the California spiny lobster, seem to be really resilient to these changes in ocean conditions. And we see, we find that it's largely true among crustaceans in general. Okay. Um, you know, we think about organisms like mussels and oysters being a little bit more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their shells start dissolving. They have a hard time building those shells in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but since crustaceans are pretty active, you know, they're running around the seafloor, finding the food that they like, swimming away from predators with the flip of their tail. They already have these built in mechanisms to deal with um, carbon dioxide building up the same way us as humans do. And so that might lend a little bit to their, their ability to withstand some of these changing ocean conditions in the future.
0: Wow. Oh, that makes so much sense that like being able to move and maneuver and have having ways to get rid of your own mm-hmm. carbon dioxide versus being a sessile organism. Fascinating. Okay. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> we think that the young life stages may be a little bit more vulnerable because You know, they're they're just feeding um, as they're hatched out. Some of them are some of them are relying on, you know, the maternal stores of energy that that were passed along to them. Um, But they haven't really maybe built up that exoskeleton as much or their reserves. And so they're really having to contend with a lot, you know, avoiding predators that are trying to eat them in the water column, doing their thing, growing really big, really fast. this sort of a bottleneck and I think that's where the field is really looking at right now is these early life stages but also other impacts as well such as ocean deoxygenation and ocean warming eutrophication so many threats and so this is I think a a, you know a really big area for the future is how do we start to synthesize all this information about how this species responds and how this species responds to all of these stressors but then how does the whole ecosystem respond together right if everything is happening at once to to everybody um, really I won't say an exciting (laughs) research you know it's a little bit sad to work on sometimes and think about what our future oceans may look like but it's it's really important to do and I think you can enjoy the work that you're doing along that path.
0: Yes it's very impactful. So something that I've recently heard is that and this is mostly regards to corals, that the ocean acidification for corals at least is almost secondary. It's the temperatures that have been really causing a lot of the bleaching events and all these massive die-offs for corals. And by the time that ocean acidification may come into play for these creatures, it's it's like past It's past that point. It's like almost a secondary hit. Um, and, the, and the temperature is really the one that's doing most of the damage. And I was curious if... That was a similar role with the crustaceans that you had studied. Like, was the temperature impacting them more than the ocean acidification, or is that something that we've looked
1: at? Mm, You know, that's a a really good question. I think that's definitely true. That corals seem to be most impacted by temperature right now, since ocean acidification is a little bit more slow progressing, still occurring, um, but at a relatively, you know, not as impactful scale as temperatures that rise like right now in the summer. Um, In terms of Crustaceans—they sometimes have a, an interesting response. We can think about some degree of temperature raising to be a little bit beneficial. Um, so the spiny lobster larvae that I were, was studying uh, range down from, you know, here in San Diego, a little bit further north to Santa Barbara or so. But they have a huge population down along the coast of Mexico, and so perhaps they're a little bit more adapted to these these warming temperatures. And so in my experiments, when I Raise the temperature a couple of degrees, they grew faster, they grew a little bit larger. This may have implications mm. for how long their larval period is. They spend um, eight months or so out in the, the open ocean before they molt into what actually looks like a little lobster, because before that, they're kind of like a little mm. dinner plate with legs, um, and they swim back Ooh. inshore. So what happens if, if the timing of that changes if they're growing faster um, and they're getting in earlier? So lots of different questions to be answered mm. with that. but we might imagine the future, too, if it gets too warm, that there's a breaking point where, you know, they just, even if they're growing a little bit faster at a slightly lower temperature, they hit that temperature and that's kaput for them. It's something that they can't tolerate. Right. So we're still sort of finding out these these thresholds where we might see the greatest impacts.
0: It's so fascinating. There's yeah. so much out there to know and to understand. I want to chat a little bit about, you mentioned your Knauss, um fellowship that you had with NOAA. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? Was that something that you had heard about in college or university and during your PhD program, and that was something you aspired to? Or um, was it just, you know, going down the research hole of like, how do I find ways to fund myself after school? How did you kind of get into the fellowship and even apply
1: for it? Some of the fellows that go into the program, it's just something that they've heard about, you know, perhaps when they're during the application cycle. So it's new to them. Um, and those people are definitely welcomed into the program. For me, it was something that I had sought out throughout my graduate career. I was a Noah Hauling mm-hmm. scholar during my undergraduate, which was really impactful for me to get my first research experience um, and learn about, you know, what it was like to be a scientist in the, the federal government. And so when I got into graduate school, I was like, Noah, like I want to end up at, at Noah. Um, and so I worked towards the what I thought would make me competitive for the Knolls Fellowship after my graduate. School. Um, some fellows do it during graduate school. They may be in their first or second year, even of their PhD or their master's program. Um, but I wanted to do it afterwards, mm-hmm. and so throughout my graduate career, I try to do things like learn more about science policy and how, you know, that works on some level. Um, I was fortunate enough to be at a, a university that sends students to some of the um, UNFCCC COPs. So the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change um, COP21 perhaps might be, you know, a good example of. Something that your listeners might know, where the Paris Agreement was was formed, and so getting to see mm-hmm. how science comes into to policy, and you know, thinking about how maybe my science could contribute to that, or how I could share science more broadly about these changes, such as ocean chemistry and ocean warming, to get them more worked into these sorts of discussions, was something that I was interested in, and I think really like lent well towards um, becoming a fellow after my time in graduate school.
0: Yes. So you were a Holland Scholar with, I'm sorry, was it undergrad or graduate?
1: Undergraduate. So you can apply during your sophomore year or the equivalent of credits. And then it gives you two years of support and a summer internship, which is a great deal.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So it's actually financial support Mm -hmm. during your studies and an internship, which gains you experience to get more experience and more jobs opportunities. So it's pretty awesome.
1: Totally. And for me, coming from a university, you know, Western Washington, which has great teaching, but not as much active research. It was really my opportunity to go and get some of that research experience. Um, I was working on salmon movement in, in Maine um, that I could then talk about when I was applying to graduate schools. And I think that was really key on my application. So it's a great way to sort of, you know, bolster your, your whole package as an undergraduate. Yes,
0: absolutely. And the Canal Marine Policy Fellowship actually it's, it has an objective to support U.S. foreign policy objectives, right? So that's kind of how you were able to shift focus more into the bigger policy and not, not so much, you know, in with the lobsters and the crabs and the shrimp, which is still awesome. And still relevant.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely depends on the office that you're placed in. So each fellow goes through a week, a week and a half long selection process to find their home base for the next year. Um, for me, that was the International Activities Office and the branch mm-hmm. of NOAA called NOAA Research. Um, but fellows are placed everywhere. Some are in the Department of State, some are in US Fish and Wildlife, a lot are within NOAA working on everything from uh, you know, deep sea exploration and supporting the program that does that to ocean monitoring, to working at these high levels of NOAA and sometimes staffing the NOAA administrator. So lots of different levels to learn about what it's like to be a federal um, you know, employee, mostly in the DC area. Yeah,
0: sounds like such a unique and interesting mm-hmm. opportunity to do that
1: it was. It was very impactful. Seeing the the difference between that and academia was really interesting for me. Um, Since Mm -hmm. I went straight into my my PhD, I didn't have that work experience. Um, I think I missed a lot of, I don't know, the training where they just don't do it about how to be a well-rounded person (laughs) in the professional (laughs) society, essentially. You know, how to send a meeting agenda, um, creating follow-up notes for a meeting, um, working on an individual development plan, all these different pieces that, I didn't find, um, you know, were were taught or emphasized in science, but I think are actually really important and could potentially be like brought back into that sort sort of sphere. So for me, it was great training to, you know, learn how to do all those different aspects, but also get this experience in a whole new realm outside of the science.
0: Yes. So I want to chat about your experience. I mean, you've done you've done two COP conferences, and for listeners, COP is Conference of the Parties. Um, And this stems from 1992, um, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So it's a worldwide place to present and find information on climate change and the effects. And it's leaders and scientists from around the world that are getting together to discuss climate change and to kind of figure out what best moves are. So what was your experiences at your COP conferences that you went to?
1: It was a whole new world for me coming from the, the scientific perspective. <laughs> There's, you know, a lot of delegates that are put forward from each country that's a, a party to this convention. Um, there are people from NGOs, non-governmental organizations, that are there to sort of, you know, bring forth their message. There are, you know, some t- scientists in a very rare capacity actually, reporters that are covering the whole. Um, Issue. And so for me, going there as a scientist, we're able to have a booth um, in this sort of area where delegates walk by. And our job was to push the oceans as such a vital piece of talking about climate change, right? Like they take up Mm -hmm. 90% of excess heat, about 25% of um, the excess carbon in the atmosphere but they also really feel the impacts of climate change as well through oceanification, ocean warming and deoxygenation so they should be recognized in these big agreements um, you know not only as a tool that um, countries can use to um, you know address climate change but something that we should be considering as well um, to bolster our, our ambition for addressing climate change and so we see delegates walk past our booth and sort of draw them in um, COP21, we had these little USBs that were a bracelet. And so you sort of draw them in and then slap the bracelet on them and say, look at the files on this USB, but talk to them about the importance of, of ocean climate change as well. Um, and so throughout COP21, we we're trying to get the word oceans in the, the Paris Agreement. And of course, it's up to the negotiators from each country that are sort of redlining this and deciding you know shall versus should and and this paragraph or this article (laughs) Um, a lot of minute details in there but just on the whole trying to push that message to anyone who would listen about the importance of the oceans um and so it was really impactful for me to see how these things get decided on the large scale that it really is a small number of delegates that are coming together and working through the night as best as they can to follow the um the goals of their own country, which you know, perhaps may not be their their own, but are sometimes dictated to them, um, to really put together a final text that hopefully everyone can sign. And I know a lot of it you know gets pushed out at the end, um, you know, just trying to get everything done, you sort of lessen up the 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 tightness of it. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's still a really interesting experience to see how that comes together um, in these big global agreements
0: yes so how effective were your methods the ocean
1: got in the preamble of the the paris agreements so the word oceans is in there once um <laughs> and so that day uh we printed out a little press release that we had typed at myself and my my colleagues from my institution some other ocean facing facing institutions and ran around to the reporters and snuck in there <laughs> just trying to emphasize the importance of of recognizing our oceans it was really fun to do um and that was sort of my first large like public speaking engagements as well um at the the u.s center which is um a booth um that some countries have to to showcase their climate efforts and um talk about you know particulars of you know what their scientists are doing or what their ambitions are what their vision is for the future and so that was that was really impactful as well and now since we're um going into this era of virtual um, events as well, COP26, um, which is going on in November, but also Mm -hmm. I imagine future COPs have the opportunity to showcase more of this online. So as COP27 and et cetera come up in future years, I think it's neat for us to be able to see some of that going online um, and get a taste of what, you know, each country is really thinking about.
0: Is COP26, is it coming online this year? We can like watch it from the comfort of our own homes. We don't have to fly to go see it. I
1: know that's such a challenge, right? Like, I understand the importance of world leaders coming together. I've been on, um, as a Canals fellow, I was a delegate on a, a U.S. delegation that went to, like, an international conference. And it's challenging to work out um, changes in text online and with your colleagues and mm-hmm. you can't have sidebars as easily etc so i understand the importance of everyone getting together but yes yeah. we're in this era where we do have these these neat tools to see everything online and so a lot of um events are broadcasting them either live streaming it during the actual cop or putting it later on their U- their youtube channel and i know the u.s has the u.s center youtube page um where they sort of record all of their their events um, So my talk from many years ago is archived on there, if anyone feels free to dig into it.
0: Very cool. That's awesome, that's great news. So what what were some of the differences? Like we mentioned, you've been to two COPs, COP 21 in Paris and then COP 23 in Germany. What were some of the differences between the two conferences that you went to?
1: What I've been really inspired by over the last couple of years is the inclusion of oceans in the COP. So whereas at some of these earlier um, COP events, there was maybe like one ocean booth, maybe two, um, and a lot of ones about forests, um, not a whole lot of side events, which are just sort of like talks and things that are organized around the actual negotiations. Um, Mm -hmm. There isn't that recognition of of how important the ocean is. But since um, I would say, COP21 and going forward, there's been a lot more of of that that recognition. Um, Fiji was the host for COP23, although it was in Germany, and there's a whole lot of events around that. There's something called the Because the Ocean Declaration, where countries can sign on to um, show their support for including the Ocean and Climate Action and the Ocean Climate Action Pathway, a number of different sort of formal mechanisms for countries to come together and talk about, you know their vision for what the ocean can do, the importance of it, um, and sort of hash that out and then make sure that it gets brought back into the negotiations of, of the text for the Paris Agreement in that case. But now as they're working through how to implement um, the Paris Agreement and finances and all these other important components, but also their ideas for their nationally determined contributions, which get updated um, every couple of years. So COP26 is the opportunity to, to do that for the first time since COP21. Um, mm. It's just a, a mechanism to, to bring in the ocean more and more. And so that's something that I've seen over time. And it's just incredible. It's like an exponential growth over the last couple of years of recognizing this really important part of our
0: climate system. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. It's like astounding to me. And I'm sure lots of people that are just kind of like live and breathe the ocean. Right. Like, how can how can you not include it? I don't understand. Right. <laughs> um, but, in the, but in the other side of the coin, like if it hasn't been and it's finally starting to get talked more and more about that is so exciting. Like it's just so important.
1: Agreed. I think it's been a really big push by not only academic institutions, but some of the, the NGOs, those non-governmental organizations, as well, to really emphasize its importance. And those groups are important for organizing these sorts of side events and other um, things that go on around the city, potentially in the zone of the cops that are open to the public, um, whereas the other zone with negotiations and such is, is closed to, to just delegates, Um those sort of groups that are not just the negotiators are the ones that are really driving some of the messages that, that come out of of these big events.
0: Yeah. So it is important to show up and be there in Mm -hmm. person. If you have, if you have the means to do so, but you, if you also have the, the cause and then, and then necessary need, right? So there's people there now pushing for the ocean. Or will be in November. Oh, yes,
1: definitely. (laughs) Um, And it is something to talk about in this this age of COVID of who can attend. um, But also historically, you know, some countries I've met delegates from small, small island developing states, which is sort of the the official name for this group of countries that are large ocean states, as they like to call themselves. but one of the delegates from a country called Tuvalu was from Sweden and he, they just needed like a warm body and someone who could speak cognizantly on their behalf. And so they invited him to, to be a delegate for their country. Um, Mm. And so some of these countries that really haven't contributed as much to carbon emissions and stand to lose the most may not have as great a seat at the table as some of the big emitters. Um, And so it's something that I think is really important to talk about and recognize, um, any sorts of events for everyone who's going to try to recognize and bring in those sorts of voices too to ensure there's balance at that table
0: yes it's fascinating policy is always so fascinating to me because it just seems like it should be straightforward but it never is because once you like you know you try to reach an agreement between just two people there's always back and forth and and then you know ultimately ideally a handshake at the end but to try to reach agreements between countries several of them hundreds of them Mm -hmm. over worldwide issues and it's yeah there's a lot to it so it's super important
1: yeah you see what the challenge is of bringing together 197 countries and that's why i think there's not only value in in these global agreements but also working on a regional scale and importantly working on a local scale as well too that's where some of the inspiration for you know larger efforts really bubble up um City action plans for climate change, for example, are a way to, to take action on a, on a local scale. Um, and then we'd be inspiration for other cities to do so or whole states, et cetera, et cetera, to address these these large issues. I don't think it's something to get um, you know discouraged about by, by thinking about the large effort that needs to go on. There's small pieces and small steps you can take here and there to really contribute to meaningful change.
0: What is it? Think globally, act locally. This is all during your KNAUS Fellowship, correct? I did the your, cops your...
1: during graduate school, so a little bit of a range there, I guess.
0: And then you made the leap over from academia to nonprofit world. So what inspired that shift?
1: Ah, this is something that I didn't see myself doing, to be honest. When I thought of nonprofits, I thought of those people at the mall who get you to sign flyers, or you know, have sad pictures of animals on the TV um, <laughs> to get you to donate. But I was really only learning more about this other side of you know, ocean conservation, which I did during my Canals Fellowship by being in D.C. and being around these organizations, that you see how much impactful programmatic work that they do, you know, how they're, they're tackling these issues in really meaningful ways. And so after my Canals Fellowship, I started at the Ocean Foundation, which is the only community foundation for the ocean. Um, it's dedicated to reversing the trend of destruction of ocean environments around the world and found my niche in our international oceanification initiative, which I found incredibly rewarding to get to do the kind of work that I that I love. Um, it's different from academia and that, you know, I'm not teaching classes, which I was not looking forward to, to doing, to staying on that path. Um, but I still feel like I get to do some of the best parts of, of being a scientist. Um, I'm not necessarily doing the science myself, but I get to help scientists around the world do that. So um, our Oceans Vacation Initiative does a lot of capacity building for for ocean science in in general. So increasing oceanification monitoring around the world. We're working in the Pacific Islands and the Gulf of Guinea right now. So I get to work with scientists to to talk about their goals of what they wanna do and help get them the resources to do so, which is just amazing. You know, I love doing my work and I wanna make sure that others um, get to do what they love as well and also contribute to our, our global knowledge about oceanification and these other issues.
0: Yes. Okay. So, can you kind of break break down a little bit more about what your role is? So, you you mentioned you have like a specific project in the Gulf of Guinea that you support. So, are you able to provide funding for them and for them to go out and kind of collect data, and then that data is assimilated into a larger database as part of the Ocean Foundation, and then you get and then in turn, the Ocean Foundation gets to dispel and assimilate that for the world to use.
1: To some degree, we also have such a, I think a broader um, role as well. So yes, we, we do provide funding. Um, as a member of a community foundation, I'm applying for the same sorts of grants that sometimes scientists are applying for. So while I love grant writing, I love getting to do that. Um, that is a part of, of my job to find this funding that then we can apply and bring resources to other places. So, mm-hmm. and for the example of the Gulf of Guinea um, and the Pacific Islands, we're able to provide training for Oceansification Science, so basic introductory concepts about you know the ocean chemistry all the way to how to carry out biological monitoring. And we do this with a, a number of partners. We're working with the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission to use an online training course that they're bringing online. We have partners in NOAA. I still work with some of the, the colleagues that I worked with during my Canals Fellowship, which I really love doing. And then importantly, a ton of scientists who can provide the expertise too, and we're able to um, you know, support them as well for their time. And so we have this this training to to bring in not only undergraduates who are interested in oceanification, but scientists who are looking to work into this new sphere, to resource managers who want to learn about you know what is the impact of these changing ocean conditions to the stuff that I care about and my fishers care about, et cetera. Um, and then we provide equipment as well. So there's something called the Goa On In A Box Kit, and that's part of the Global Ocean Cification Observing Network. And it's a suite of over like 40 different items that we pack into a very large box and send mm-hmm. off to, to scientists at these institutions. It includes almost everything that they need to carry out ocean monitoring to really high standards. Um, and so we provide then hands-on training for them to use this equipment and be able to integrate it into their lab. Um, they can go out and take water samples as frequently as they want. They have sensors that they can deploy and leave in areas, perhaps with coral reefs or other habitats they wanna learn more about. And then um, once they've collected that data, we have a process for them to submit it to um, global platforms. So the Global Specification Observing Network has a platform, but there's also something called the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And goal 14.3.1 um, is helping develop an indicator for oceans by collecting information on ocean pH around the globe. And so we train mm. them on how to upload their data. And so they, then they become part of this, this whole global system that's learning more about ocean and really become integrated into the research around it. And so it's really exciting to see someone who just wants to do this work. Um, you know, of course, I've only been there for <laughs> less than a year now, so I haven't gotten through this whole process with my, my scientists yet. But, you know, from what I've heard, just bringing them this this equipment and the training and the support you know along the way continually when instruments break or they have more questions you know we're there to to answer those questions send them new equipment connect them to the experts and then they're able to to carry out this research that they are really interested in and has an outsized impact in their their region
0: amazing really so the international ocean acidification initiative that you you are part of you're enabling you're enabling everyone not everyone you're enabling global efforts to collect data in order to better assess what's going on in the oceans as far as ph is concerned at least
1: totally and we're also interested in bringing that out to ocean science in general um uh, through Equacy, which is a uh, a program that um we have developed at the ocean foundation but in consultation with um dozens and dozens of other partners around the world for um, to create ocean science capacity for all. And so what that means is um, being able to talk to to people in a certain region and learn what their issues are. Right. Are there not the jobs for the kinds of careers that are taught in colleges or perhaps, you know, there's not the programs even in the universities that would allow people to fulfill jobs that have a need? Like, are there environmental impact assessments that need to be carried out? And does the country hire, you know, contractors from outside the country because they don't have the in-country capacity? So we're thinking about what we can do to sort of fill these gaps and connect the people that are interested in ocean science to the careers that they're interested in um, and really build ocean science capacity that way. So it's neat to be able to focus on Ocean's vacation, which I love and you know, really want to address, but also so much more impactful to to think about ocean science as a whole and you know get everyone on the globe on sort of a level playing field that hasn't really been possible over you know the last couple of decades.
0: It is such a cool initiative. I love it. I love getting people to work together. And the fact that you guys are doing it on a global scale is just seriously really impressive.
1: We work on a lot of time zones, <laughs> so it's always a challenge finding those, those perfect meeting times, but I feel so lucky to have the, the tools that we have today to
0: facilitate that. One of my favorite questions to ask is, what does the ocean mean to you?
1: One of my favorite things is thinking about all of the stuff we have yet to discover and all the things that we mm-hmm. have discovered so i love animals right my invertebrate zoology class is one of my favorites at western washington and there's so many cool animals in the ocean and those are just the ones that we know about there's so many expeditions to go out and you know check out in the deep sea and find some cool worm or <laughs> um, you know some some fish that we haven't seen before and so for me the ocean is really a place of, of possibilities and there's such an emphasis on, you know, exploring our universe right now, which I think is is valuable. We learn a lot in the scientific field from those sorts of, of expeditions. But I also think about you know, if we were to live on Mars in the future, what a bummer to not have the ocean and like all of the amazing stuff that you know we're finding in it um, on another planet. And so for me, it's that, that place that is just out there and has so much cool stuff.
0: Yes, I love it. I love it. And actually there was one question I want to circle back to is, you know, like we mentioned, you made this shift from academia to nonprofit. What what are some things that you like or don't like about either one that kind of have crystallized it as you've shifted roles?
1: I'd say what I really like about working at a nonprofit, you know, I had talked about I envisioned seeing myself at NOAA. Um mm-hmm. But something that has only really clicked since I've gotten to a nonprofit is just how much flexibility I have in pursuing the sorts of things that I'm interested in, right? I, mm-hmm. As I mentioned, I get to write those grants that scientists do and talk with scientists, you know, not only around the world, but also here in the U.S. that I've really admired in the oceanification field and think about what cool science we get to do together. So it has like all those best parts of, of being in science um, in terms of the thinking aspects. Um, and so that's something that and I've really loved doing. Another thing I'll throw out here for anyone who's interested in these careers is the time that you spend in each of these roles. Academia is a little bit more open ended in my experience. You know, <laughs> you perhaps can set good boundaries for yourself um, and hope that others around you or ask that others around you respect that. And so, one thing that I love about being in a nonprofit is my time outside of work is respected. I don't get urgent emails coming across my inbox at, you know, 6 a.m. on a Saturday, um, which sometimes would happen in my Canals fellowship. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. I'm not expected to to work late nights and work the weekend if there's nothing really important going on. And so, I've really appreciated finding that that balance um, in my life. And I some people really enjoy working. Um, I enjoy my other hobbies too, like baking and crocheting sweaters and other things. And so finding that, that way you want to work and what sort of sector supports that is something that I'd recommend anyone who's going into this field think about, you know, write down what parts are important to you. Is it is it salary, which I think is totally fine. Um, is it work-life balance? Is it getting to make an impact? Is it, you know, enjoying... Who you work with and getting to choose that more—is it having more structure, et cetera, et cetera? All these different pieces, because there are so many different paths, but they tend to have these sorts of, of trade-offs along the way.
0: Yeah, I think that's true for any field, right? Mm-hmm. Like kind of writing down what what's important to you, what you want your life to look like with it, and being able to test it, because you know one one shoe doesn't always fit mm-hmm. <laughs> the other foot, right? So you may have to try different different nonprofits or bounce back and forth between academia and nonprofit or government work and kind of see what that looks like. So that's great advice. Yeah, I agree with
1: what you just said for sure. So
0: this kind of ties nicely into another one of my favorite questions to ask is if you were given a blank check, unlimited funds for any project up to three, I asked this question to somebody and they were like, I can only pick one. So up to three projects, um, what would you use the money for?
1: This is a dangerous question. Asking this as someone who's working at a at a nonprofit,
0: I know. Uh, I know that's why I'm <laughs> excited to ask you this question.
1: Uh, if we were to think on a global scale, it would be tackling climate change. Um, but that has so many different aspects to it, right? You know, we've gone over right. some of those today. I would say what is more feasible for us to do to address oceanification is. Um, enable everyone who wants to study oceans vacation to do so. So that includes lots of training, lots of equipment, lots of cool support around the globe, and not just, you know, some of the places where we can get funding. Um, But I would especially love to be able to give people the opportunity to study uh, marine organisms, and how they respond to these changes how they may influence the ocean chemistry I think about kelp or seagrass that that does so and create really dynamic interesting habitats and then be able to use that information in a way that's meaningful so i would envision you know a global project to send out all this equipment everywhere, um, lots of support. So we have experts on on hand to to share their expertise on how do you address this tiny piece of equipment if it's acting up, or you know if you're interested in this sort of region, what do we already know about it, and we can apply to an experiment. And then be able to run those oceanification experiments or do that long term monitoring, go out and study all the, the existing fish and the existing invertebrates that are there, but then maybe bring some back to the lab and uh, expose them to these future conditions and glean as much information as we can. And then be able to use that um, to go to their local government or their um, national government and say, you know, this is an issue. We're seeing XYZ sorts of changes. That would not be great. in in the future because we rely on these resources for this in this region um, and this in this reason. And so what can we do to to address that? And so the work that we do right now sort of has pieces of this. We work on the policy aspects in some ways already, um, but really just having all that information together and making sure that those that wanna do ocean science can do it would be my dream. I think that would be amazing.
0: That's a great use of the fun. <laughs> Ooh,
1: the donors will, will appreciate that then.
0: <laughs> Always <laughs> trying to piece <appease> <laughs> There you go. <laughs> what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And mm-hmm. this could be a really awesome day out in the field where everything went right. Or it could just be uh, things happened and it, really, it makes a really great story now. And for you, I think field could apply actually like, you know, out in the water and on the boat. Or out in the policy field.
1: Mm -hmm. That's so true of science, I think, and and other, you know, the broader aspects as well of you expect things to go one way, there's delays, there's challenges, there's all sorts of, of roadblocks along the way. And I think that was something that was true of graduate school as well. And so always being able to push through is important. The story that comes to mind is one of my relatively limited field experiences um and this is during my my study abroad during my undergraduate where we had a week of the course to um, choose our own research question and carry out an experiment so since i was you know indulging my new love of crustaceans i wanted to study these fiddler crabs and so um, the professor said all right behind this marine lab um, where we're taking classes, if you wander through the mangroves a little bit, there's this mud flat with these fiddler crabs. So mm-hmm. I wandered my way back there, walked through the shallows, walked around the mangroves, and came across this beautiful mud flat of, of fiddler crabs that are doing their little claw waves as the females are walking mm-hmm. by, they're ducking in, they're eating stuff. It's really amazing. And so I wanted to study um, how they build their burrows, like are the burrows a little bit deeper at higher tide levels or maybe more of them living down near the lower tide levels where they have more water influx, like what are they doing there? And so this was prior to me taking any sort of field ecology classes or labs or anything. So I had a general idea of how to use the quadrat tape and like the, the PVC quadrat that they sent me along with, but apparently not enough because I no. laid out my transect tape at uh, the low tide line and used my quadrat. Uh, to go up and down, up and down. And throughout the course of one day, I counted every single burrow on the, <laughs> that mudflat. It was like 1900 crabs, I believe. And so it was such a long day. I trudged back, got on the bus, and you know, my professors asked me how it went. And it quickly became apparent to both of us that I had no idea what random sampling was. <laughs> I could have saved myself a lot of bending over crab burrows with <laughs> just a little bit more knowledge of, of how to do ecology. So... I had great so data. This podcast
0: is actually supposed to work.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, was, it was. a good oh experience. My right?
0: Yes, you know that's character building. That is what we call character building. Mm-hmm. I learned a
1: lot about those crabs those days. So,
0: you know what? They're really entertaining to watch with their big claws. They are. It was, it
1: was amazing.
0: <laughs> So, for listeners, well, there's two things. One, fiddler crabs are really fun. They have these, like, the males have these, like, nice big claws, and they, like, wave the females over, saying, come here, come look at my pretty claw, don't you like it? So, they're very entertaining to watch. And then, for for quadrat use, um, typically, you kind of lay a transect, so you just, like, measure out an area, and then you put a quadrat, which is literally, like you described, a square PVC over that area, and you count the quadrat like whatever's in the quadrat whatever you're counting so if you're diving it could be coral or marine invertebrates in this case it was fiddler crabs and you count how many are in the quadrat and then you kind of measure out the transect line and you can extrapolate your data without actually having to count 1900 crab holes so that's fast that's that's such a good lesson though (laughs) and now they'll know (laughs) how to use the quadrat (laughs) Basic ecology. Oh my gosh, that's so good though. That's great. So at the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today?
1: Ooh. Um. so I want to ask listeners to take a topic that they only find or follow on a, like a cursory basis on social media and dive into it further to find more voices and more perspectives on it. Um, so essentially, diversify who you hear from, um, because some big social media influencers or some organizations have grown their following by focusing only on what they themselves do, um, which may not always be the best or most efficient or factual or even beneficial way of carrying out ocean conservation. I mean, you know, they may just be proposed, like posting what gets them engagement and elevates their own personal status. So. I'm not saying we only have to listen to PhD experts, you know, that are citing peer reviewed work. Those are the be all end all of voices. Um, but I think it's really useful to dive into a topic and look at those who have a more on the ground perspective. Um, you know, those that have local and indigenous knowledge of an issue, um, those that have focused their career deeply onto that issue. And, you will think about it 40 hours a week more so than any of us who are following them probably do. And those that share other perspectives and highlight diverse voices too. So I'll put a plug in for the Ocean Foundation's uh, social media because our team highlights a lot of our partners and reshares information about um, lots of different ocean conservation issues. But I just think it's really important to be able to um, find different voices and sort of weed out you know, what may just be self-serving or what looks good on the surface to, to learn more about you know, ocean plastic or other stressors on the ocean as well.
0: Great ask. I love that. It's a great message. Kind of expand beyond your bubble. I dig it.
1: Which is such <laughs> a challenge. I open up Twitter, you know, wake up and look at what I look at, but um, I think we can all right. benefit by, by seeing, you know, what, what others are, are talking about and having a diverse amount of voices that we're, that we're following and learning from.
0: I agree. hundred percent. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and or your work at the ocean foundation, where's the best place to do so?
1: The Ocean Foundation is on basically every social media platform you could wish. And like I said, our social media team uh, has a great amount of content um, on all these different channels, so I'd recommend following them on your preferred one. Uh, for myself personally, I'm on Twitter at DeClaude decapod, which seems a little bit sad um, <laughs> now that I think about it. Uh, decapod or decapod crustaceans like crabs and shrimps and lobsters, and they're declawed because I was studying ones without claws for a long time, such as grass shrimp and spiny (laughs) lobsters. So I'm not ripping the claws off of crabs, I
0: promise. (laughs) Um, They're naturally declawed. Yes, naturally. (laughs) They come without claws.
1: Yeah, and they do things great without them. (laughs) (laughs) So that's where I'm at. Fantastic.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our chat.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you as well.
0: Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review, and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.